All right, Second Thessalonians chapter 2. This is our go-to passage whenever we are trying to prove what we believe about end times, that it is a post-trib rapture. And uh, just the other day, I had somebody on, there was somebody on Twitter that I follow that did a post talking about how there's no way you can get the uh, revealing of the Antichrist to come before the rapture and then he, something like that, and then he put down Second Thessalonians 2. And I'm thinking, what in the world? You know, this is our go-to passage and I got on there and I said, the only way you can get the revealing of the Antichrist to come uh, you know, after the rapture is if you're using Schofield's notes. And I'm actually preaching out of my Schofield Bible tonight uh, because I left my preaching Bible at home. Uh, but at the same time, I might refer to some of his notes. And, and then he said, oh, I've never read Schofield's notes. And listen, when a lot of preachers preach Schofieldism, it's true they've never read Schofield's notes. But their college teacher has read Schofield's notes. The one who taught them how to, you know, exegete this passage, uh, they did read Schofield's notes. And so, because uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show you too, what Schofield says about some of the things in 2 Thessalonians 2 makes zero sense at all. So we are going to just, we've done it before, but we're going to do it again. We're digging up the pre-trib rapture and we're going to kill it again and bury it again. Because you know what? It's kind of a zombie out there with meat hanging off of it, walking around still. There's still some remnants of it out there. And so we're going we're gonna, to uh, you know, get a zombie slayer bullet that Sam Gipp talks about and uh, blow its head off again uh, just, just because. Because it's such a bad, bad teaching. Or it's, it's bad doctrine. And it's just really bad doctrine. So what I want to do in this message, I want you to have your Bibles open to 2 Thessalonians 2. And Matthew chapter 24. Keep your finger on both of them. Because I'm going to show you basically what I think Paul's doing right here is he's preaching Matthew 24. Now, I know Paul didn't have Matthew, the book of Matthew during this time, but there's no doubt what Jesus preached at the Olivet Discourse, what he taught had circulated, and Paul had definitely heard it. There's no doubt about it. And it, what it seems like he's doing here, and I know he's not, but it's literally like he is preaching a sermon from Matthew chapter 24. He's using all the same language. He's got the same order of events. Everything is the same that he brings up in 2 Thessalonians 2 that we see in Matthew chapter 24. And I want to point this out because pre-tribbers, when you back them in a corner, they'll try to tell you that Matthew 24 is not about the rapture. And sometimes they'll even tell you this isn't about the rapture. But if you use any consistent Biblical hermeneutic in any way, shape, or form, you cannot get what pre-tribbers get from this. And so we're going to uh, prove this once and for all. Okay? And any pre-tribbers out there listening online, if you can hang on and if you can actually listen to this whole thing, okay, I'm just going to warn you, it's going to rock your world. And you're going to find yourself in a situation where do I accept this truth and take the heat you know, from my popes and things like that? You know, or am I going to follow the Word of God? And I hope, I hope they follow the Word of God. And, and I, I'm not just talking, folks. All right? this is, we're going to leave nothing left here. So here we go. So, But the preacher is they need Matthew 24 to not be about the rapture or in any way related to the church because in Matthew 24, there's no doubt the rapture comes after the tribulation or the gathering of the elect or the uh, one in the field, uh, two in the field, one taking another left. That comes after the tribulation. So to do this... To separate these things, you'll hear preachers get up with great pomp, with great authority. They'll say things that sound great. And if you need a good one-liner, you know, which is all it takes to win a camp meeting person over, you know, if you need a good one-liner to line up with your agenda, you know, that they're good at that. But if these guys were standing before a thinking audience with an open Bible, 
Okay, their statements, their one-liners would be rejected because of the fact they don't hold up to any scrutiny at all. So they'll say things like, you know, Matthew 24 can't be about the rapture. This is what the Ruckmanites say, because Paul revealed the rapture in 1 Corinthians 15. Okay, now I can get up there and say that with great pomp. You know, Matthew 24 can't be about the rapture. The Apostle Paul, you know, God's apostle to the church, he revealed the rapture. Says in 1 Corinthians 15, 51, Behold, I show you a mystery. He's showing them something that they had never seen before. Okay, but here's the thing about that. The mystery was not the rapture. It was, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Because that entire chapter is all about the resurrection of the dead. And so he is explaining a truth that had not been known about how our body is going to be changed and how we're going to be transformed in a moment and in twinkling of an eye. And those who are dead, they're going to rise and they're going to be transformed, not with the old body that they had before, but with the new body. Same as when you put a seed into the ground. It's not the, it's, uh, it's something more glorious that comes out of the ground than the seed that was put in the ground. So that's what he's revealing to me. He's not revealing the rapture. So, so that's a dumb statement. That's an ignorant statement. That is not true. Don't let them get away with it. So, false, okay? False. If they ever say that, just, you know, make a buzzer noise, that's a lie. They'll also say Matthew 24 can't be about the rapture because there is a difference between what Paul taught and what Jesus taught. And I've said this before and I'll say it again. There are no contradictions in what they said. Additional details do not create a new event. Those details do not clash. If, if they are talking about the same event, okay, and I believe they are, we can assume that because nothing that Paul talks about would conflict with what Jesus talked about. In fact, they've got a lot more in common that they talked about than what they don't have in common. But what they'll say, where did Jesus say anything about dead in Christ rising? Well, that wasn't what he was talking about. He was talking about his coming. The Apostle Paul, in 1 Thessalonians 4, he's talking about those that he didn't want him to be ignorant about that were asleep, that were dead. Paul's talking about the resurrection of the dead that's going to happen in Christ's coming. Jesus was just talking about his coming. So those things don't conflict. They actually fit together. So that's just a dumb statement. Okay? That's a, that, that also is ignorance. They'll say Matthew 24 can't be about the rapture of the church because it's all about the Jews. Okay, but either way you slice it, okay, even if it is all about the Jews, it's still the same order of events, isn't it? It's still the same order of events. And so then what they have to do is they have to create another rapture. So that's what they've done. Yes, that event of the gathering up of the elect, they will say that is not the rapture, that's something that's coming for the Jews. But, you know, that's a pretty big stretch when we see just how these things are exactly the same, how Paul's using the same language same order of events, it's just, it's crazy. Okay, There's no way to do that. So first of all, these statements are not true. They work been standing before ignoramuses where no one fact checks you. But with critical thinkers, they can see right through this. And so there's many reasons I believe the rapture comes after the tribulation, but why, and, and there's many reasons for why I believe it's the rapture in Matthew 24, but I'm going to tell you, one of the big reasons is the parallels between 2 Thessalonians 2 and Matthew 24. And so let's look at these. So keep your Bibles open, Matthew 24 and 2 Thessalonians 2. So verse 1 says, Now I beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto Him. So what people often do 
in the dispensational world, in the pre-trib world, they try to separate the coming of Christ from the rapture. They'll say, you know, when you bring up verses that we would say about the rapture, they'll say, well, that one's about the second coming, meaning Armageddon. That's what they mean by that. When they say second coming, they mean Armageddon. Okay. When I say second coming, I mean rapture. I don't mean Armageddon. I think that's a separate event. I don't believe we're going up at Armageddon, but I believe the second coming is the rapture. And I say that because that's the language Paul uses. And I'm going to show you that here in a little bit. And so, but here's the thing that's crazy about that statement. Okay. About trying to separate these things so far, we're not going to take time to go back and look every reference of the coming of Christ in first Thessalonians. And we, I proved this when we went through first Thessalonians is always about the rapture. Every single time there's, there's no denying that. And in second Thessalonians so far, it's always been about the rapture. And even pre-tribbers would have to agree with that if we took the time, if they took the time uh, to look at these things closely, it's always about the rapture. So they will try to separate these things and act like the you know coming of Christ or the second coming in the rapture are different events. But here's the thing. Notice what Paul said in verse 1. He said, I beseech you by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto Him. So what would those events be? That The events that Paul called the coming of the Lord and our gathering together unto Him. Well, if I was the Apostle Paul and I was using Matthew 24 for my text, and again, I know Matthew 24, he probably didn't have that in front of him, but the things that Jesus said in Matthew 24, I'm sure had been talked about and Paul had heard about it from the other apostles. Okay, So if I was, but figuratively speaking, if I was preaching from Matthew 24, what would I call the rapture if that is in fact the rapture? Well, I think we would have to call it the coming of Christ or our gathering. Okay, Now, why is that? Well, let's go to Matthew 24 and look at several verses. I'm going to go through these quick. Verse 3. And he sat upon the Mount of Olives. The disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us when shall these things be and what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world. Verse 27. For as lightning cometh out of the east and shineth even unto the west, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Matthew 24, 30. And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. Shall all the tribes of the earth mourn and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Verse 31. And he shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet and they shall gather together his elect. So notice we're seeing coming and we see a gathering taking place. Verse 36. But of that day and no hour, that hour knoweth no man, know not the angels of heaven by my Father only. And the pre-tribbers love that verse to prove imminency. So is it talking about the rapture or is it talking about the second coming according to you people? Okay. Well, you got to, got to take your pick. Verse 37. But as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. 39. Uh, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Verse 40. Then shall two be in the field. One shall be taken and another left. Alright. Those being gathered, would it be wrong to say they're being taken? Or being, those being taken, being gathered? I think it works together. Uh, verse 42. Watch ye therefore, for you know not what hour your Lord doth come. 44. For in such an hour as ye think not, the Son of Man cometh. 46, uh, whom his Lord, when he cometh. 48, my Lord delayeth his coming. Verse 50, come in a day when he looketh not for him. So, if I was going to name this event that Paul ta- or that Jesus talked about in Matthew 24, I'd call it the coming of Christ. 
What about when they're gathering up the elect? I'd probably call it the gathering. And so when the Apostle Paul starts out here in 2 Thessalonians 2, and he says, I beseech you by the coming of our Lord and our gathering together to say that he's not talking about the same event in Matthew 24 is nuts. It, it makes no sense at all, but yet they have to do that. And so what they do, what some, what many will do, well, no, it's because the day of Christ, you know, that's talking about the day of the Lord. It's, again, some will say it's talking about Armageddon. But I'll show you why they have to do it. And folks, what they do to these verses to make that fit is ridiculous. So notice first in verse 2, it says that you may not soon shaken in mind or be troubled, neither by spirit nor by word nor by letter as from us, is that the day of Christ is at hand. Now, one argument people often bring up to try to claim this isn't talking about the rapture is they'll say, why would they be troubled about the rapture being at hand? That's what, that's what they'll say about it. It can't be talking about the rapture because who would be troubled that the rapture is about to come? Okay, so that, that's what people say. Now, here, but here's a very, very important thing to understand about interpreting this passage right here. Okay, we've got to understand is this letter, it's specifically written to the Thessalonians. We talked about this last week. So the thing is, we can't say, conclusively say, why they would have been troubled because we don't know, we haven't seen the letter that they wrote to Paul or what had been reported to Paul that he's answering here. They would have known what he's talking about, but we don't know. Do you all understand that? Paul doesn't explain in this letter why they were troubled about it. He just mentions for them not to be troubled by that. So for you to just assume you know what it is to fit your doctrine, that's eisegesis in the worst way. And so what some people will say, well, people were teaching that the rapture had already come. And so these people are thinking they got left behind. Well, the problem with that is we have no evidence that that's what they were concerned about at all. So why would, and, and let me ask you, why would somebody be worried or be troubled that the day of Christ was at hand? Now, because remember, Paul say, he says things in his letters that are personal. They would know what he meant, but we don't. Okay, now, I'm going to tell you what I think about this, which is what they are doing when they do all these other things, okay? But what I think he was addressing here and why they would be troubled is based on what Paul wrote a lot and what Paul dealt with a lot. And you know what those first century Christians worried about is how they were about being right with God at his return. We see in 1 John chapter 2, verse 28, it says, And now little children abide in him, that when he shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. They did not want to be ashamed at his coming. We don't talk about that today in our lukewarm Laodicean age. Our attitude is, come and get us out of the mess we're in. You know, my life's falling apart. My marriage is falling apart. My finances are a mess. I owe all this money. Hurry up, Lord, and come back and rescue from all my problems. Well, you know what? If you were right with God, if your life's a wreck right now, you'd be ashamed at His coming. It's possible to be ashamed at His coming. And one thing we showed when we were going through the book of 1 Thessalonians, these were new Christians. They still had some issues. They were working on them. They were moving forward. They were becoming better Christians. But I think they were concerned because they're like, you know what? We're, we're not very good yet. We don't want to be in this condition when Jesus Christ comes back. And we're hearing all this talk about eminency. 
Because they had the pre-tribbers come to town preaching a revival meeting, and all of a sudden they're like, "Man, we're, you know, what are we going to do?" You know, and and I I believe that's why they were troubled because the first century Christians cared about that, and I can show you a bunch of evidence of that. We don't have time, but that's just my opinion. It's not stated anywhere in this text, so um, for us to get dogmatic and use it as proof of something is ridiculous. You know, and and it's okay to speculate on things like that as long as it doesn't contradict something else in the Bible, which their speculation contradicts other things in the Bible, especially with what they're going to do later. Uh, so anyway, you know, and so uh, I think that's the strongest possibility, but because this, you know, this is not the American Christian attitude of our generation, but you better believe it was then and it should be our attitude today. We, but that should be our attitude. So verse 3 says, let no man deceive you by any means, for that day, the day of Christ, the day of our gathering, shall not come except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. Now, some people will say the falling away is us falling away from the earth and talking about the rapture. Okay, I, I hate to even dignify that position, but that's a real position that's out there. I, I, I don't know what to say. You know, what do you say? To, what do you say to dumb stuff like that? Uh, so, uh, there's no doubt this day he's talking about is the day of Christ or our gathering. Okay. So the thing is, some who will say this is a rapture, they're basically saying that the rapture can't come, or the day of Christ, which is the rapture, can't come until the rapture happens. You know, it's just like they they get in these weird messes with some of the things that they they try to say. And so there are certain things, though, Paul's saying that must come before that day can come. Eminency is a false doctrine. Eminency is a false doctrine. And it will be until the man of sin is revealed. When the man of sin is revealed, I'm jumping on the eminency bandwagon and we've got a whole bunch more end time songs we can start singing. Because then we can start singing, keep looking up, you make on the night. You know, we can start singing some of those songs like that. And I know a bunch of eminency songs and we don't sing them here in this church. But when the man, when the man of sin is revealed... We're, we're singing them. All right? We're bringing them back out. We're pulling them out of retirement because it will be biblical then. So verse 4. So he's saying, that can't come except the man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Now, while I believe Paul's basically preaching from Matthew 24, it is appropriate that he would make a reference back to Daniel here. Because remember, in Matthew 24, 15, Jesus said, When ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet stand in the holy place, whoso readeth, let him understand. And again, I believe Paul had heard this message. He, Paul had heard the words of Christ. And so the apostle Paul, when he hears that statement, whoso readeth, let him understand, I think he went back and I think he read Daniel. Because Jesus referred to Daniel, and notice what it says in Daniel 11.36. Okay? So remember, 2 Thessalonians 2.4, Who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he is God, sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Daniel 11.36, And the king shall do according to his will, and he shall exalt himself, and magnify himself above every god, and shall speak marvelous things, against the God of gods, 
and shall prosper till the indignation be accomplished, for that that is determined shall be done. Neither shall he regard the God of his fathers, nor the desire of women, nor regard any God, for he shall magnify himself above all. Is that not exactly what Paul was talking about there? We would call that the abomination of desolation. So right there, the Apostle Paul very clearly says the day of Christ or the day of our gathering cannot come until a falling away happens and ultimately what that falling away will lead to is the Antichrist being revealed or the man of sin being revealed, the son of perdition. That's how it's going to end. When did the falling away start? You know, is it going on right now? You know, is it go, did it start in Paul's day? All, you know, everybody wants to debate that. I think it started back in Paul's day, but I believe at the, at the end of the day, ultimately where it's going to lead is to the Antichrist setting his image up in the fake temple. And, and, and listen, I don't want to, I don't want to take time to preach this, but here's, let me briefly tell you what I believe the falling away is. I believe the falling away started when during this day, when most of the Jews rejected their religion, rejected the Old Testament, and rejected their Messiah, and they fell away and started a new religion that John called the synagogue of Satan. And I believe, ultimately, when the synagogue of Satan has been working on getting their power in the world for a long time, fully gets it, it will you know, be revealed when that abomination of desolation takes place. And that's why everything's centered around Israel, folks. You know why? Because it is the Jews that are behind all this stuff. And eventually, they're going to get that temple mount. And Christians will be cheering like crazy when that takes place. When they start building the temple, they're going to go nuts. They're going to be thrilled, not realizing the Antichrist is going to set his temple up and then he's making war with the saints. And they are going to get it. You know, and along with the rest of us. So, I believe the falling away, that's ultimately what Paul was talking about. I think it started then, but when they, when that synagogue of Satan fully comes in power through the false prophet and the Antichrist, that's when Satan will be revealed, that man of sin, and then it's all going down. So that's what I believe about the falling away. Uh, I could talk more about that another time. But, uh, verse 5, now notice this. So after he tells them this, he says, Remember ye not that when I was yet with you, I told you these things. And and this is so important we understand this verse. Paul has given them a brief summary and reminders of things previously taught. Not things that was in his previous letter. Things he taught them while he was there with them in person. Now let me ask you, what were those things? We don't know. We weren't there. Paul didn't write about them. So you know what we don't get to do? We don't get to insert our own facts in there. Okay? Now, we can insert our speculation about what Paul's about to talk about here. We can insert our speculation as long as it doesn't contradict anything else in the Bible. If it contradicts something else in the Bible, then our speculation is wrong. And even if our speculation doesn't line up with, or does, doesn't contradict the Bible, it doesn't mean we're right either. But if it does contradict, you're definitely wrong. Okay? So notice verse 6. And ye know what withholdeth that ye might be revealed in his time. Now let me ask you, what withholdeth that he, the Antichrist, might be revealed in his time? Because guess what? Paul didn't tell us in this letter, did he? So he, he refers back to what he told them. Remember how I told you these things? And so he said, and ye know. 
But do we know? No, we don't. Folks, we don't know. We don't know what Paul was talking about here. Okay, And Schofield doesn't know either. We'll show you what Schofield thinks. But we don't know. We can guess. Okay? Nobody knows. Pre-tribbers don't know. Post-tribbers don't know. We don't know. They knew. Okay, The people he was talking to, he says, And now ye know what withholdeth he might be revealed in his time. So, verse 7 says, For the mystery of iniquity doth already work, only he who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. So the word letteth, it doesn't mean like to allow, but it means the same thing as withholdeth, or to hold down, or to hinder. That's what that word letteth. So he's been talking about there's something that's withholding this revealing of uh, the man of sin to take place, and they knew what it was. The mystery of iniquity was already working, but whatever it was that was withholding it, okay, Paul said, you know what it, it, what it was, but we don't know for sure what it was. Okay, now, let's see what Schofield had to say. Okay? And I know these guys, and one of the things I said too when this guy told me, this pastor said that, you know, I've never read Schofield's notes, and I said, well, that's good, because I, I know where pre-tribbers are going before they go there. And I said on there too, I said, well, that's good, because if you read Schofield's notes, you might think that the Holy Spirit's going to be getting taken out of the world. And then he just responded, well, I just think that because of what the Bible says. Uh-oh. See, you just revealed to me that you either did read Schofield's notes or you're just copying a textbook or your teacher. Because you can't... That is not in this passage. It's not there. Okay, Holy Spirit hasn't been mentioned yet. And how do you know that's He that withholdeth? How do you know it's the Holy Spirit? And so what they say is once we get taken out of here, the Holy Spirit's gone. And they get that from Schofield. It says, uh, the order of events is the working of the mystery of lawlessness under divine restraint, which had already begun in the apostles' time. The apostasy of the professing church is next. The removal of that which restrains the mystery of lawliness. The restrainer is a person, he. And since a mystery always implies a supernatural element, this person can be no other than the Holy Spirit in the church to be taken out of the way. The manifestation of the lawless one, the coming of Christ in glory and destruction of the lawless one, the day of Jehovah. So he's making that day of Christ being what happens at the end when Jesus comes back at Armageddon. That's what he's doing in this passage. And folks, this comes from Schofield. End of story. Okay, the idea of the Holy Spirit being taken out of the way, that doesn't make any, any sense. So, I think the best theory on that, on the one who has to be taken out of the way, because it's something that's actually taught in the Bible, it's something that's actually taught in the, in the, in the book of Revelation, I believe it's referring to the death of the Antichrist, because when the Antichrist dies, it's then, you know, when he receives that deadly wound, and then and he resurrects, and even pre-trivers would agree that they believe that after that death of the Antichrist, when he arises, he's going to be inhabited by Satan himself. And so I think who has to be taken out of the way is the Antichrist. Okay? Now, I'm not going to get dogmatic on that because Second Thessalonians doesn't tell us for sure. Paul didn't tell us. He didn't write it in these letters. That could be what he's talking about. They knew what he was talking about, but we don't know for sure. 
So at least that theory, it doesn't contradict anything in the Bible where the removing of the Holy Spirit does. Okay? If I make my bed in hell, thou art there. Okay? You, you don't get away from God. You're not going to get away from the Holy Spirit. So that doesn't, that doesn't make any sense to just insert that. Now, if you wanted to say, well, it's the Holy Spirit that's preventing it from happening, and then He's going to... but you know, He's going to stop withholding it. Well, that seems a lot then, you know, that doesn't sound right either because it's talking about something that's holding it back being taken out of the way. Okay. And it seems like you got to remove something and get rid of something that's, sounds like somebody's beating the Holy Spirit based on that. And that's ridiculous too. And, but they say no, it's when the, because the rapture is going to pull the Holy Spirit out. When it pulls all the believers out. And this is, that's just dumb. That's not in the scripture. It's, there's been no reference to the Holy Spirit. And there's only one reference to the Holy Spirit later in this chapter when it's talking about your, you know, salvation. We'll see that in a little bit. It has nothing to do with this event. So that's ridiculous. So verse eight says, and then, okay, and then, meaning after whatever's taken out of the way, shall that wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth, and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. Okay? Now, if you are convinced that this is talking about the rapture, look back at chapter 1 in 2 Thessalonians and verse 7. It says, And do you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power when He shall come to be glorified in His saints and to be admired in all them that believe because our testimony among you was believed in that day. So is there no doubt He's talking to the church right here? He's talking about Christ's coming with power and glory to be admired in all them that believe. He's talking about the destruction that's coming, uh, you know, on on the devil. There's no doubt that's what he's talking about here. He's talking about the rapture. He's not talking about Armageddon. He's talking about the rapture right here. And so when we see him using the same language in the very next chapter, we have to assume he's talking about the same event. There's no evidence that he's talking about another event. And notice in verse eight, Second Thessalonians two. How he, he talks about how the wicked is going to be revealed and what's going to happen to this wicked is the Lord is going to consume with the spirit of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. So, verse 30 uh, of Matthew 24, if you look there, it says, And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven, with power and great glory. So right here, he's using the same language that Paul used in chapter 1 and chapter 2. Coming in power and glory. And what does that mean to come in glory? I think it's referring to the brightness of his coming. A lot of times when you talk about glory, it's talking about brightness. It's something that's shining. Something that gets attention. And so when Jesus Christ comes in power and glory in Matthew 24... You're going to have a tough time convincing me it's not the same thing as it's talking about in 2 Thessalonians 2 when it's talking about him destroying the devil with the brightness of his coming. So, uh, again, Matthew 24, 2 Thessalonians 2, same event. No doubt about it. So, now notice verse 9. 
even him, talking about Jesus, whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders. So Christ's coming, okay, and so far, every reference to Christ's coming and in Thessalonians has been about um, the rapture. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, in verse 19, it says, For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Are not even ye in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ at His coming? Verse uh, Chapter 3, verse 13, To the end He established your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all His saints. That's, that's Armageddon. That's Armageddon. Well, remember chapter 4, verse 15, For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. Remember how he also said, for if uh, we, uh, we believe uh, they that sleep in Jesus, will God bring with Him? So that's right there in, our, in the big rapture passage. It's talking about Jesus coming with His saints. So these are not references to Armageddon. These are references to the rapture. No doubt about it. And it, and it calls it His coming. Paul's been calling it His coming throughout Thessalonians. And then you're going to try to tell me all of a sudden now it's talking about a, a different event. Armageddon makes no sense at all. And, he, and so he says His coming, talking about Christ's coming, is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders. Now, Matthew 24. Verse 24, look what it says there. For there shall rise false Christ and false prophets and shall grow, show great signs and wonders, insomuch that if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. So, right here in Matthew 24, before it gets to the rapture, it talks about the false prophets that are going to come uh, and they're going to do many signs and wonders. Oh, there's a difference. Things that are different are not the same. Paul said lying wonders. It just says wonders there. Well, but he also said they're deceiving people with those wonders. So guess what those wonders would be? Lying wonders. Okay, Those would be lying wonders. Is this not this, all the same language that we're seeing? Does it not look like Paul has been studying the Olivet Discourse before he preaches his end time message right here? There's no doubt about it. And he's calling it the coming. The same thing he called it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. It's the same, it's the same event. There, there's no way around it. Absolutely no way. Verse 10, And with all deceivableness of unrighteousness and them that perish, because they received not the love of the truth, that they might be saved. And for this cause, God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie. Okay, So for this cause, meaning because they received not the love of the truth, because they did not listen. And so while we don't know for sure what the strong delusion will be, here's the funny thing. All pre-tribbers teach that after the rapture, God's going to send a strong delusion. So, why do a strong delusion after Armageddon? That doesn't make any sense. But no, the strong delusion comes after the rapture, after the coming of Christ, after He comes with clouds and every eye sees Him and all the kindreds of the earth shall mourn because of Him. There's no secret rapture that's not in the Bible. This is not there. The vanishing that takes place you got that from a bad interpretation of 1 Corinthians 15 when Paul is explaining the changed body 
And he does not say we will be caught up in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. He says we will be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. No disappearing is going to take place, folks, on the rapture. No disappearing. It's going to be a catching away. It's going to be a gathering together. That's what's going to, that's what's going to take place where there's going to be one taken and another one left. That's what's going to happen in that day. So, same, same thing we're seeing here. And so, verse 12 says, that they all might be damned. They're getting the strong delusion, so they will be damned, who believe not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. You say, well, that sounds pretty mean right there, but what we have to understand about this is now is the day of salvation. Okay? Now is that time. When Christ returns, it will be to judge the world. It's, that's why He's coming. He's not coming to save the world. He already came to save the world, didn't He? Jesus, hey, I, I, I think this is mean. I think Jesus should be coming to save the world. He already did. All you've got to do is believe on Him and you'll be spared all this stuff that's coming. But if you reject Him, okay, if you reject Him, you're going to get the strong delusion and you're going to believe the lie because when He comes and you see Him after you've already rejected Him, you're reprobate at that point and you are only meant to be punished. That's, that's all there is to it. So here's a question. Will anyone get saved after the rapture? And, and I do think it's very likely that people will get saved after the rapture, but at the end of the day, that's just God being merciful. Again, I believe it will be people who did not have a chance, people who did not hear the truth, but at the end of the day, this, this event is ultimately about judgment. He doesn't have to save anybody. So I think it's safe to assume He will when we see the 144,000 witnesses that are, that are going to uh, show up right after we leave. Uh, that in uh, Revelation 7 and 14, uh, seems like you know, they're doing it for a reason. Now, I will say this. We don't see them getting anybody getting saved in Revelation. You know what we see? We see people blaspheming God and not repenting of all their sorceries and fornications and all their things. We see them just blaspheming God. But that doesn't mean nobody's going to get saved. But the world as a whole, they're not going to receive Christ. There's not going to be a revival during this time. You've got guys out there because of a bad interpretation of Revelation 7 and 14 are going and they're raising money trying to get all the Bibles they can possibly get, Hebrew Bibles, over there to Israel, to the Jews. Now, I am not against getting Hebrew Bibles to the Jews. Right? That is not a bad thing. But, at the same time, their reasoning for it just shows how you know goofy their theology is. They are literally trying to get these Bibles over there because they are expecting after we get raptured, they're hoping they'll take a look in those Bibles, you know, and feel like realize Jesus is Messiah, and they'll get saved. And what they're trying to do, they're trying to lay the groundwork to get the 144,000 saved. Okay. Now, again, if their theology was right, that's a noble cause. The problem is their theology is wrong. In the meantime, well, what harm are they doing? They're getting Bibles to the Jews. You know, there's nothing wrong with that. I don't want to beat them up for it. But I did. I talked to Brian Sharp one time. This was years ago. And he was talking about how they're trying to get these Hebrew Bibles over there. And this was back when I was pre-trib. And I thought Brian Sharp was like the end times guru. I had just bought his cassette set of his verse by verse through Revelation. I was like, I will know everything there is to know about Revelation after listening to this. And I listened to it. And I thought I knew everything there was to know about Revelation. <laughs> you know? And then, but uh, 
boy, you know, boy, did I learn different later. But anyway, I asked him this question. I said, do you think what you're, this work you're trying to do over there is, could potentially be what reaches the 144,000? And he just looked at me and said, yes, I do. He's, and they are, they're convinced. And, he, and this is what he says. They're going to they're gonna have the greatest revival that the world's ever seen. And I want to get in on it. He's like, I want, I want to be in on it. So he's like, he's trying to get those 144,000, you know, all the groundwork ready for them to get saved. That way, because, you know, they can get all the fruit that they're going to get. But you know what? I don't see a massive revival anywhere in the Bible during that time. I see people blaspheming God is what I see. I do believe they're going to get some people saved, but I'm not seeing the big revival that they're looking for. So let, you know, let's not beat them up too much. They're getting Bibles. You know, nothing wrong with getting the Word of God out there. Okay, All right? Even if their motives are bad and their theology is messed up. So let's not pick on them for that. But at the same time, you know, you just you kind of face palm. Especially when he tells a story I've heard him tell a thousand times where they're always trying to smuggle these Bibles in. They put them in their suitcases, try to get as many as they can. In there, and he was like carrying all these bags, trying to go through security, and he lost his pants. And you know, anybody ever heard that story? You guys heard that story? Yeah, he tells it everywhere he goes. But um, funny story, scary story. But at the same time, uh, it's it's just bad. It's it's not the right motivation. But anyway, so you know, I do believe people are going to get saved uh, during that time. But so verse thirteen says, but we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit. There's the Holy Spirit. But he's referring to the Holy Spirit when talking about their salvation and the sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. So again, Holy Spirit is in Second Thessalonians 2. Well, yeah, later when he's on another subject. When he's referring to their salvation and their sanctification that came through belief of the truth. And you know what? Salvation, it comes through belief or faith. There's a great verse there to prove that. Verse 14, whereunto he called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And all who are saved will be glorified at Christ's return when our bodies are changed. That's what that's talking about. When we receive our glorification. Hey, right now, what you're looking at is not glorious. Right now, we're looking at the sinful flesh. We're just looking at this tabernacle that the Apostle Paul wanted to get rid of. Paul wanted that tabernacle that comes from heaven. Paul wanted that new body. That's what Paul wrote about in 1 Corinthians 15. In great detail, he wrote about that new body, that transformed body. The Bible talks about they that be wise shall shine as the brightness of a firmament. I believe when Jesus Christ comes and He transforms us or glorifies us, I believe we're going to shine like He did on the Mount of Transfiguration when He was transfigured and His and He was there in glory. His, his countenance was shining like the sun and the, and the Bible teaches that we're going to do the same thing. We are going to be glorified. Right now we're not. And you know what? The Bible teaches... Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. You know, the world, they look at us, they don't see anything special. Okay, now the trendies, they're trying to make themselves look all special and sweet and smiley, and they're trying to do all these things to just, you know, win these people to Christ through their awesomeness. But let me tell you, the Bible teaches there's really no, there's nothing special about us. 
But you know what we do have? We have a message that we tell people about. We give people the gospel and it does not yet appear what we shall be, but when he shall appear, we know we're going to be like him for we shall see him as he is. And we, we are not glorified when we get rid of our, you know, when we change our life and we start wearing the new clothes and we get the haircut and we remove our tattoos and we do all these things. That's not our glorification. We're still a mess. You can still see the signs. You can still see the scars of those that have lived a life of sin. But one of these days, we are going to get a transformed body, one that's like Christ, and we will be glorified in that day. We will be something to behold, something that is impressive. But you know what? The glory is going to go to Jesus Christ because He's the one that's doing it to us. You know what? I Think about it. I've been saved for uh, 35 years now. 35 years I've been saved. And let me tell you something. This is all I've accomplished when it comes to glory, glorifying anything. I'm losing my hair. I'm getting older. I got this messed up muscle in my arm that's been that way for weeks and will not get better. And I have more issues all the time. Just getting older. Can't see very good. I mean, I've got all these issues. This is all I've accomplished with myself in 35 years. And let me tell you something about this flesh. Jesus said it can't enter into the kingdom of God. So you know what? I've got to have, I got to have something done. Something's got to change, folks. Something's got to change if I'm going to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And thankfully, what needs to be changed has already happened in my heart. It's already happened in my spirit. But you know what? It's got to happen in my body too. And it will happen in my body at the resurrection. It will happen in, the, in my body when I see Jesus Christ and I behold Him. He will transform me. And you know what? I will be glorified, but ultimately, He will be glorified. He's coming back to be glorified in His saints. Right now, we're not impressive, but we will impress everybody when Jesus comes back and changes us. And all glory will go to God when that day comes. So verse six, so uh, verse 15 says, Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which ye have been taught, better by, better, whether by word or our epistle. You ever want to drive the trendies crazy? Use that verse. They hate traditions. They hate that word. They go to verses speaking against traditions in the Bible and they act like all traditions are bad. But no, Jesus didn't call out the Pharisees for having traditions. He called them out for having traditions that actually caused them to disobey the Word of God. A tradition isn't bad unless it causes you to sin. And the Apostle Paul here too, notice how legalistic he got. He said, you follow the traditions that you receive by epistle. Well, that counts as the Word of God but also the ones that you receive by word. He said, you do the things I told you. Now, I don't think for a second that that means I now have the same power as Paul. I don't have apostolic authority where I get to start new traditions and then demand them. You know, and then when someone, I mean, when Brother Austin goes and starts a church, hey, you better follow all the traditions that we have here. The ones I showed you in the Bible and the ones that we did. You better have a singspiration every Sunday after Thanksgiving. You better have whatever other traditions that we do. You better do it all the same way. And I got, no, I don't have apostolic authority. Okay. But at the same time, not all traditions are bad. Not all traditions are bad. We have some good traditions. And, uh, uh, and you know, don't, don't get your skinny jeans in a wad when you hear people talk, you know, you use, when you read this verse. Okay. It's okay to have some traditions. So, Verse 16, now our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God, even our father, which hath loved us and hath given us everlasting consolation and good hope through grace 
comfort your hearts, and establish you in every good word and work. And so we see another exhortation to them to continue on in the good works. To he's trying. And, and remember what I said. I believe they were troubled because they weren't where they wanted to be spiritually when Jesus Christ returned. And so the thought of an imminent rapture scared them because that was a problem. That that was something they were concerned about in the first century. Lukewarm Laodiceans. Okay? And I don't believe in Laodicean age, but enough people have been taught we're in the Laodicean age so much, they think that's how you're supposed to act, like a pathetic, lukewarm, good-for-nothing Christian. Okay? That, But these people were not American Christians in, in the 2000s. And so notice what he, how, he, how he said that the Lord Jesus Christ, or he said, comfort your hearts. Remember, at the beginning of the chapter, they're troubled that the day of Christ is at hand. I think it's because they didn't feel like they were ready to meet him. So he says, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. And I think the Apostle Paul, he was not concerned about these people not being ready because one, this church was doing good. These people are growing. They're, they're moving forward and the Apostle Paul didn't believe in imminency. Like people try to tell you. Paul, the Apostle Paul did not believe in that. And so he's comforting them, you know, not so they can delay things, you know, delay, you know, because this is what the pre-tribbers say too. Well, you know, if I believe in a post-trib rapture, I just wait until I start seeing all the signs and the tribulation starts and then I get right with God. Well, first off, no, you wouldn't. That That's just dumb. That doesn't fit theology either way. And you know what? That's an attitude of a sorry Christian. You're just basically telling me you're a sorry Christian. You're doing what you're doing now, not out of faith, not because you believe it, but because you're scared God's about to come back. And sometimes we need that as a motivator, but at the same time, you ought to grow out of that. You ought to be past that by now. These people, they were moving forward, and so they were, they were anxious. And, Paul, and so Paul's trying, he's comfort them and letting them know that they could be ready for Christ's return. They could be they could be doing the Lord's work when He returns, and you know what? The dispensational Laodiceans don't care about that, but you know what? Us Philadelphia Christians, we do care about that. We do care. We want to be doing God's will when He returns. It's okay if you're like, you know what? I'd like to win a few more souls before Christ comes back. I'd like to accomplish a few more things. I'd like to get some things right in my life. Hey, I, I, I want Jesus to come back. I feel like I'm ready, but there's nothing wrong with as long as you're moving forward. And unfortunately, most Baptists say because of this pre-trib doctrine, they are in just this position of just trying to just hang on and they're not advancing. They're just trying to hang on to what they have. We've got to stop losing our guys, all this skinny jean crowd. You know, just move forward. You can't just, main, you can't just remain in one position forever. You have to be advancing. And they've stopped advancing and we don't ever want that to happen. So, 2 Thessalonians 2, there's no doubt about it, folks. It's about the rapture. Matthew 24, it's about the rapture. It's about the coming of Christ, the rapture, the gathering, same event. And it all comes after the revealing of that man of sin. After the tribulation. So, let's pray to your Lord. Thank you for your word and for the clarity it gives us. Now, Lord, I pray you help us to have this attitude of this uh, church in Thessalonica that we will... Uh, be getting ourselves ready for your return. Lord, I pray that we'll uh, be concerned about this. Help us to not let this Laodicean, dispensational, lukewarm attitude rub off on us that we're just looking for you as a fire escape you know, to 
you know, get us out of our problems here on this earth, but help us to just be obedient and to be victorious as Christians and just becoming more and more like you. Uh, so there will be as little change uh, as possible whenever you come back. In your name we pray. Amen.